Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, good morning, everyone. Wow, voluminous. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome, good to see you all. Uh, Happy Memorial Day weekend to everyone. I hope tomorrow you get into a pool, you have some uh, nice beverages and foods with your friends and your family, hot dogs, sure, you know. It's great. Three-day weekends are a thing, and they're wonderful. Um, We're going to be continuing. First of all, my name is Ryan, uh, pastor here at City Beautiful Church. Uh, uh, We're in this series right now called To the Holy and Faithful, where we're taking Paul's letter to this little church in Colossae. This little church, like, it's a very mixed bag. There's a lot of, like, there's, there's Jews that recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a lot of Gentiles who have heard the good news about, about the King Jesus, and, and they've really come into it. But there's this kind of awkward clash between these groups because they're so young and they're diverse, and they're really, they're listening to all these other voices in culture. There's a lot of, like, you know, in the Middle East in that time, in the kind of known world, there was a lot of competing philosophies about how to live a happy and whole life, and there was a lot of different religions and, and what God is like, and they were struggling with a lot of the things that you and I might be struggling with today in the 21st century, that it's like, okay, yes, Jesus, but it's Jesus plus this other thing. That's really how we live a full life. And so Paul's writing them to say, no, 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 as soon as you start getting distracted by the things that are happening around you in society and you go, Jesus plus this other thing, um, you actually decenter Jesus from our faith and it becomes something else. And so he's writing to this young, diverse, confused, tense community trying to say, you cannot overemphasize the centrality of Jesus because everything that we are as Christians kind of radiates out from there. And so even the past couple of weeks, um, we've been looking at, at that, uh, that kind of unfolding. It's the centrality of Jesus. And then Paul begins to speak about, okay, this is how we live. This is how we relate to one another. This is how we understand how we make decisions as Christians because we've been informed we're being shaped by the spirit of Jesus. Um, and that brings us to the piece that we're going to be doing today about kingdom relationships. So I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in because there's a lot here. It's super dense. It's going to be really uncomfortable because even as soon as I read it, y'all are going to be like, oh man, this piece of scripture, we're going to do this bit. And I'm saying, yeah, we're going to do this bit because it's there. But there's some really good stuff here, guys. There's some things I think the Lord really wants to do. So let's pray. So I'll pray for you and you pray for me because I need it because I'm like squidgy. I'm squidgy today and I need, I need help. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you're with us and that you are for us. You've given us your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, our advocate, who even when we don't know what to say, when we don't know how to pray, your spirit is inside of us, um, advocating for us. And not only that, but King Jesus is, is at your right hand, and he's advocating for us as well. And that's, that's our team. That's who's on our side. And so, Lord, I pray that as we move through some difficult scripture, you would begin to reveal to us the deeper truths that you wish to reveal, truths that will actually set us free, that will bring us life, 
that will help us to understand what it means to have relationship in your kingdom, um, that we would shed some of the societal expectations and even some of the unhealthy expectations that we've received within the Christian household to come back to this far deeper, more beautiful truth of how we're called to relate to one another in the light of who you really are as revealed uh, in your son Jesus. So may the words of my heart, or the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 25. It's a very short passage. But this is how I kind of wanted to frame it. All our relationships are stories we're telling the world about what God is like. Every relationship that you have, okay? Your relationship with your family, whether it's your parents, your children, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your friends, even your relationships with your enemies, all of those, whether you realize it or not, are narratives that you're working out and kind of practically demonstrating what you believe about God. And many of you know one of my passions in life is helping us to recognize that whatever we do is a reflection of what we believe about God, whether we realize it or not. Maybe you haven't consciously made the connection, but the way you treat other people is a reflection of what you believe about God on some subconscious level. If you believe that God is vindictive and judgmental, guess what? You begin to judge other people. If you believe that God is, con- is kind of up in the sky with this constant ledger measuring your behavior, you're going to reenact that with other people because we believe, as Paul Tillich says, God is the ground of our being. He's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. And, and whatever we believe about the foundation of reality is what we begin to play out in our day to day. And I love that we're talking about this today because in the church calendar, this is Trinity Sunday. This is the day where Christians around the world were reflecting on God as a Trinity. And I'm not going to be preaching directly on the Trinity, even though I'm really passionate about it. But I hope that as we're speaking about relationships, it begins to reveal what that, those deepest truths that we believe about what God is like. Because God, by definition is a loving community. That's, that's the radical claim of the Christian faith. We say God is not one and only one, because if God was the one and only one, he's pretty selfish and he kind of throws temper tantrums if we're not paying attention to him. But we believe that God is a trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is this loving community, this other-centered, self-giving, loving community. And when we embrace that as the core foundation of reality, it begins to change the way that we see our relationships and the way that we see ourselves. And I think it's important then to recognize that all of our relationships become these stories that we're telling about God because that is, that's our goal. That's the thing that we're moving toward. And God is constantly giving us these targets or these things that we're aiming towards in our relationships as he's shaping us by his Holy Spirit. So what we talked about in previous weeks about, you know, um, our ethics and our virtue, it's not about following the rules and being a good little Christian boy and being a good little Christian girl and turning the Bible to page 284 to find the thing that you're supposed to do about the thing, but it's actually being in relationship with God where he's shaping us to think differently, to feel differently, and to act differently. And when we begin to apply that to the relationships that we're gifted in this life, we recognize those relationships exist so that we become more like Jesus because we're in relationship. And conversely, God uses us to form other people to become more like Jesus. You know, a lot of us, we really struggle with this idea of God speaking to us. Uh, because a lot of us have narrowed that down to thinking, oh, it must be when the sky parts and the hand of God comes down and everything's made obvious. But I think 
actually the most powerful way in which God speaks to us is through other people, amen? I mean, think about the most like, mind-altering moments that you've had with God, and I bet you most of them actually came through other people, through your spouse, through a friend, through a parent, through an enemy, whatever it is God was speaking to you through that relationship. And I think what's so powerful to recognize is on this side of the grave, all these relational roles that we have are these temporary realities that are gifted to us now to prepare us for the realities of, of the new creation, the new heaven and earth. So your, your relationship with your parents, your children, your extended family members, your marriage, your friendships, all of these, they're kind of like these living symbols that are helping you to understand what God is like, that are shaping you and forming you so that when we are in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, we fully step into relationship with God, understanding him on a deeper level than we possibly could. It's kind of like when Paul says, you know, now we see as in a mirror dimly lit, but then we shall see face to face. So we get these little glimpses of God through our earthly relationships now, these little foretastes of what he's like. And then when in the resurrection, we see him and we're like, oh my gosh, yes, I know you. I, I already know you because of the relationships that I had in my life. And so that brings us to our passage today. Like I said, it's a very short one, Colossians 3, 18 to 25. I think this is one of the most practically dangerous texts in Scripture. And I'm willing to bet, because I've sat with many of you and spoken to you and heard your stories about growing up in the church, and this is, this is one of the passages that's probably the most weaponized and most oppressive, amen? Like, let's just put that on the table. We're not going to read this and be like, mm, that was a good word. Let's move on. It's like, oh, you're going to feel this thing, okay? And I'm giving you permission to feel that thing, because you feeling that thing is God going, hey, let's deal with that. So I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to kind of like give you the background of it. And then the three specific relationships that Paul's speaking of, I want to kind of address what's the deeper reality that God's inviting us to realize there. So this is Colossians 3, 18 to 25. Wives, submit to your husbands. And already you're like, okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Dad, you got that? This one's for you. Fathers, or it can also be translated in the Greek as parents, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only with their eye, when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Whew. Okay, what do we do with this, <laughs> all right? This is one of those really hard ones because what happens so often when we approach Scripture is we come into it with 21st century lenses because of our surrounding culture, and we read first century words through a 21st century lens. And what is that lens? It's, it's American, it's a capitalist primarily lens, um, it's an English language lens. Like we've got all these lenses and part of the work of what God is doing in your life is just calling to attention the lenses that you already look at the world through so that you can begin to sort through them. 
And one part of that is going, what's actually happening here and what's really going on in the scripture? And one part of it is going, what are the things that I've just been wired to because of the culture that I'm coming out of, because of the foreign land that God is drawing me into his kingdom from? And how do I allow him to restore and redeem some things so that I can actually have a kingdom mentality? So here's what's happening essentially. In the, in the known world, the Roman Empire in the first century, there were kind of these household rules. So you would walk into any Roman household and there'd be a plaque kind of by the front door. And it had these rules written on it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. And in the Roman Empire, they believed this is how you maintain civilization. You have to maintain order, and you have to have a a very clear understanding of who's in charge and where the authority is, and that's how you maintain, um, you know, a bond within a family. That's how you keep society, um, like, in control and structured and ordered, or else it's just chaos. So that was just, that was a thing. So those things that Paul's writing, he didn't invent those three things. That was already in the water. So what we have to recognize is it's, it's more about what Paul is adding into these household rules than it is about the rules themselves. Because what Paul begins to do is actually this quite subversive Christian kingdom move to challenge and upend and even revert some of the conventional thinking of the day. And this is why the cultural context for this passage is so, so important. Because if we don't recognize the move that Paul's making through the lens of Jesus, we actually begin to perpetuate some of these ungodly relational dynamics that we find in this passage. And what does that mean? It means an unhealthy submission to masculinity. It means an unhealthy submission to, uh, to per- people who are parents. And then it, the perpetuation of slavery. So we're going, to, we're going to address all three of those things in a moment. But what we have to understand here is really what Paul is doing is about this idea of authority. Who's in charge? Who is in control? Who has the right to determine what a relationship looks like and how people are supposed to behave? And so in the first century Roman Empire, much like today, um, authority was understood as kind of a top-down maneuver. That the world kind of ranks people by who's at the top and then who's beneath them and who's beneath them. I like to think of it as kind of like military authority, you know, where you have colonels and lieutenants and captains and all those, and there's kind of this like vertical ascension of power. And you always run things up the rungs to the person who's a little bit more in charge of the next power. That's, that's why so often when we're struggling with customer service, we're like, I want to speak to your supervisor, get them on the phone, right? Because we know there's somebody above that person. And what happens, unfortunately, is that many times, because human beings are just so wired to think this way, we've taken that empirical notion of power and authority, and we've superimposed it on the kingdom, and we assume that that's the same way that God works. And so what happens in a lot of areas in the Christian household is we go, here's how it works. There's a trinity, and it's Father, and then it's Son, and then Holy Spirit, and then maybe like the Bible, and then there's men, and then there's women, or there's white people, and then there's everybody else, uh, and then there's like handicapped people, and then there's like children, you know, and like we've ranked people according to what we think is the, ro- is the role of authority. And we're trying to maintain something that is actually what, what, what I believe Jesus, Paul, the early Christians were trying to radically reimagine and to rupture some of those assumptions. Because that kind of a militaristic authority power actually maintains a status quo in keeping everything in check to, to work for those that are at the top. Because it's one-sided a power and authority. It's power over 
But if we listen closely to what Paul is saying here and in other places, we begin to realize that Paul is advocating for this radical reimagining of what power itself means. Because Paul has read everything now through the sacrificial love of Christ. You remember, before Paul had his dramatic conversion, when he was Saul, he believed in this kind of power over. And he murdered Christians because that's what the Bible told him to do. That's what he believed was good and right. He believed that was God's desire. And they did this radical encounter with Jesus that shifted everything, literally blinded him, and he had to take years to kind of like be rewired, to, to, to be removed from this addiction to this kind of authoritative militaristic power. And everything that Paul says, we see it consistently throughout his letters. He's saying, no, no, when you, when you really understand Jesus on the cross, this is the true demonstration of power. It's not that God comes in with a bigger stick to fix the world. It's not that God comes in stronger than us and then beats us up into submission so that he can save the world, but it's the powerless move of God to actually shed all of that, to die for us. And in doing so, he takes captive the powers and the principalities, the authorities, all these things that we've been talking about in this series. We see a reimagining of what power really means that's defined not by militaristic authority, but by self-sacrificial love. And when we believe that, when that becomes our lens to understanding our relationships, we begin to see a society transformed because there's a mutual power sharing and not this sense of power over. And we see this even more in depth in kind of the sister passage to this in the book of Ephesians, where Paul takes a lot of these ideas from Colossians and he expands them a little bit more. And there's a couple little like passages that I want to show you from Ephesians that I think flesh out this idea just a little bit more so we can hear what is the thing beneath the thing for Paul before we talk about these three relationships. So for example, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, this is what we read. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first thing he says is, you are going to follow God's example. So the life you're called to live is a cross-shaped life. You're called to live the same way that Jesus lived. And Peter says a similar thing in his letter, that we are to, to take upon ourselves that Christ's example. And look, he says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this isn't a militaristic power over where God came in with the bigger stick and then beat us up and saved the world. But it's actually that sacrificial, self-giving love that becomes the foundation of how we understand what power really is. And he's saying, you're to live that same way. And then just before we come to these three household rules, there's a very key moment in Ephesians 5, verse 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? Submit to one another. So he's already laying the table that when we talk about husbands and wives, when we talk about parents and children, and when we talk about masters and slaves, there's a mutual submission, an expectation for mutual submission there. So let's just go ahead and call out one of the major misappropriations of this passage. It's the wives submit to your husbands, right? And what it's been used for is it's taken out of context, which you guys know, context is my jam when we come to the Bible, and they go to 522 and it says, wives submit to your husbands. They go, okay, you got to submit to me. You got to get all submitted. I have the power. I have the authority. And it's like, if I'm going to submit to my husband, I just kind of have to do what he says. And they go, no, 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 no. Guess what? Your, your husband is supposed to submit to you as well. I don't know if that's revolutionary to you, but like, that's not how a lot of the world works. 
It's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And then we see at the very end of the passage, 6-9, I think 9b, the second part of it, is a really great bookend. So we need submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus, these three relationships, and then he says, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. There is no favoritism. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and there is no favoritism. So when it comes to gender, when it comes to race, when it comes to socioeconomic status, God does not show favorites. Mankind, humanity shows favorites. And we read that into the scripture time and again, and we actually reinforce ungodly, demonic power structures because we think that at the end of the day, there still is a certain degree of favoritism. Well, that person has that level of authority, or they have that bank account, or they have that privilege, or whatever, because God likes them a little bit more than me. You know, one our, our sister church in Lima, Peru, talking to them a lot about this idea of grace, and in South America, our brothers and sisters in the faith say, yes, we believe that grace is a real thing, but we just, we feel like grace is just a little bit more freely offered to our North American brothers and sisters than it is to us. That's a real thing. And there's a whole history there of like colonialism and kind of uh, imposing a a very European identity Christianity over people that that made them feel like they were inferior. And so they get stuck in these kind of religious institutions where they're always trying to, to earn God's favor. And they understand the concept of grace, but we must have it a little bit more because of our privilege. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. But we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because God shows no favoritism. And I think this is what's so, it's what's so radical about this idea, but what is also so dangerous is that these kingdom principles of how we relate to one another, this kind of mutual submission, submission this, this other-centered love, this, these ideas of radical kindness. Remember, there's a difference. Niceness, which we're in the South, we're real good at being nice, aren't we? Like, we hide from each other with niceness. And niceness kind of like, ba- we're always looking for equilibrium. Like, niceness is where we balance the scales. Kindness is radically tipping the scale in the other person's favor. Most of us know what to do with, when people are nice to us. We don't know what to do when people are kind to us. And how do you know? It's because as soon as someone's kind to you, you're already thinking about how you're going to pay them back. Because it's a, instead of receiving the gift, and this is kind of what Jenna was talking about earlier, like God delighting in us. We're like, oh, I got to do something to kind of give it back to him. You know, it's like, oh, I can't, I can't be in God's, like, I, you know, in his favor. Like, I can't receive that gift. Like, there's got to be some sort of contractual obligation that we have where there's an exchange of ideas and services. But these ideas of mutual submission, of kindness, of other-centered love, they only work if both people in the relationship agree to it. That's what's so dangerous about what I'm about to propose today. Because all of our relationships in the kingdom are built on trust. Trust of God, that he has a radical new imagining for humanity, and then trust in our relationships that we all have the same goal of where we're trying to go in our relationships. So how do I define trust? This is what I believe. Trust 
is the freedom from worrying if I will have my needs met, okay? So that's number one. It's a freedom from something. When you and I enter into a relationship with one another, we are needs-based creatures. That's just, God has created us that way. It's not bad to have needs. It's, it's just part of being a human. You need food. You need shelter. But you also, you need love. You need respect. These are realities that aren't good or bad. They're just things that we're called to steward. And when we don't trust one another in relationship, we're worried that my needs are not going to be met by you. And what happens often when we don't trust one another is that we become manipulative. And we start to do things with an agenda to try to get love out of people. Some of you, you're schmoozers. You just, you just kind of amp up the charm. You want to charm people into giving you what you need because you don't trust that they see you and they value you. Some of you, you... Some of you are getting a little close to home, aren't we? Some of you, you pull away. You don't trust that people are going to have your needs met. So you're like, oh, I'm just going to become self-sufficient. I'm just going to do it myself, and I'm not going to rely on anybody. That's, that's what I need to do. I'm just going to find, meet all my own needs. And this is very much a part of the American dream, right? It's like get the house in the cul-de-sac with the picket fence, with the garage that you can drive straight into to get into your house so you don't have to rely on anyone because we don't trust people. We don't trust people. This is why we've got a gun epidemic in our country. We don't trust people. But in the kingdom, we step into relationship because we're learning how to see one another as God sees us. And we say, by faith, I believe that you are here to meet my needs. And so I don't have to worry whether or not that's going to happen. I'm going to teach you along the way how to meet my needs, and I'm going to open up to see if I can meet yours. Like there's a trajectory. There's trial and error. We're working on it. But ultimately our goal is I don't want to be afraid whether or not you're going to meet my needs. So trust is freedom from, but it's also freedom to. It's the freedom to be generous in unconditional love. If I don't trust you, all of my love is conditional. If I don't trust you, all of my love is conditional that I'm giving in order to get. And so the radical nature of this mutually submissive, other-centered, Christ-like relational love is that we're freed from the fears of whether or not we're going to get our needs met, but we're also free to learn how to love generously and selflessly. But then the question becomes, as we've been looking at virtue especially, how am I going to use this newfound freedom that I have in Christ? And what we begin to recognize is the guidelines that we find in Scripture actually become opportunities to help us to become more free, not less. And that's, I think, the second move that happens. It's the reaction against that militaristic understanding of power. Is that when I enter into a relationship where I'm given mandates like this in Scripture, I am somehow less free because of what it's telling me to do. And one of those common societal uh, philosophies that we've talked about a lot is in order to be free, I need to be free from all expectations. I need to be free from all definitions. Anytime someone has an expectation of me or there's a demand, like I'm less free, I'm being confined by other people. So if I can just make myself human Teflon, then maybe that's how I'm going to be free. But many of us realize that's a dead-end philosophy. If I just throw off all the definitions and all of the expectations, then I'm truly free. But we find that we don't know who we are, and we don't know how to love, and we find ourselves viciously alone. And I think one of the crazy things about this passage and others is that Paul, I think, intentionally leaves this vague. He intentionally leaves it vague. So he says, he uses that word submit, and he goes, now go and Go and, go and figure it out. It's like Jesus said so often in his earthly ministry, say, go and figure out what this means. 
because he's not giving us the manual to go, and by the way, this is what submission means, blah, 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 and you got to do this and this and this, because that would be Paul robbing you and I of the capacity to learn how to think like Christians, robbing us of the capacity of having our lives opened up to experience the crucified and resurrected Christ and allow that to change how we relate to one another. So Paul is almost challenging us that you and I, we have to do the work to figure out what he means in these difficult passages, even though it triggers a lot of things and it means there's going to be a lot of work that has to be done to unlearn some stuff that we've learned in the past. So real quick, I want to hit those three relationships just to give you a little bit of a lens so that you can go on and to do the work. So I'm not going to do what Paul didn't and give you these like overly defined things, but I want to just kind of put something into the water so that you can start working this out. So these three things. First of all, marriage. And you know I'm the expert. That's a joke. I'm not married. So this is all purely conceptual. <laughs> That's why we're going here. But I've done premarital. And I think everybody's still married. So I'm, I think I'm doing something right. Um, marriage in the kingdom is based on selfless love in which two people become more together than they were when they were alone, okay? When two people become more together than they were alone. And I was really wrestling with that phrase, is it selfless love? Because it's not, again, one of these things that we've learned, like being selfless means you don't think about yourself and you erase yourself and don't be selfish. It only becomes about the other person, not about you. That's not what I'm saying. I think that's poisonous. Because Jesus told us the greatest commandment, love your God with all your heart, mind, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's kind of three elements of love there. But it is this other-centered love, again, when we're in this reciprocal relationship where you're meeting my needs and I'm meeting yours. And I think Paul probably had in mind the story of Adam and Eve. You know, as, um, as a Pharisee, well-versed in the Scriptures, Paul would have known that story of Adam and Eve inside and out. And what do we see there? The break in relationship, right? Like God creates Adam. He recognizes it's not good for Adam to be alone, even though he's got complete intimacy with God. So God creates loving community for Adam that they can kind of bounce off one another what it means to be in relationship with God and what it means to be human. And how many of you, like, you turn to your friend or your spouse and you're like, being human's weird, right? You're like, this is weird? Okay, yeah, this is weird. And we're like working it out together because we can't figure it out in a vacuum. But what we find, in the, the break in the relationship between Adam and Eve is that when the lie from the serpent comes, he begins to sow these seeds of doubt. Do you, do you really think that your needs are going to get met? Do you really think that God's going to provide everything for you? Do you really think that that person is going to be like this beautiful community for you? And they begin to distrust God and they begin to distrust one another. So what happens is Eve makes an executive decision on behalf of the family, and she posits power over Adam. And what does Adam do? He unhealthily submits to Eve. And I tell you what, I see this time and again in marriages today. This is, y'all can write me emails about this. I think what happens so often is that men are so passive in relationship, and women are so powerful that they end up inadvertently uh, positioning themselves over men and men don't do enough to actually step up and, and have our real role of sacrificial love and it gets all squidgy. Is that controversial? I don't know. Right. Right? I mean, like, that's what happens. We've got, there's a lot of relationships where there's unhealthy authority of men over women and there's a lot of relationships where there's unhealthy women over men. 
And that, that's the break. And so the curse comes where it's like, Adam, you've got to work. You've got to get some skin in the game to actually like start figuring things out. And Eve, you're going to have this unhealthy obsession with your husband. But that was the curse. And any kind of theology that you're given about marriage that perpetuates the curse where Adam is over Eve is demonic. Okay? Why would God, through Christ, perpetuate the curse of Eden? What is actually happening, I think this is what Paul began to realize through the lens of Jesus, is that Adam's role was now to elevate Eve back into her proper equal, co-equal relating with him so that they could kind of start over again. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, yes, wives, submit to your husbands, just as we're all called to submit to one another. But husbands, you've got to love your wives. You've got to get some skin in the game. You've got to start sacrificing for her. You've got to treat her like she is the be-all, end-all of your life. And I think, how do we know when we're in that kind of relationship? And this is what I ask couples all the time when we're doing premarital, if there's postmarital, or whatever. Are you more of a person now than before you met that per- your, your spouse, your significant other? Do you love God more now because of that person in your life or less? Are you more of a whole human being made in the image of Christ now than when you were with that person? Because I've been with couples and they have turned to one another and said, I am less of a person now than I was when we got married. Like that's, that's so hard. And I'm not saying that you're all half a person walking around looking for the other person to complete you. That's from Greek philosophy, that's pagan ideas, that has nothing to do with Christianity. You are a whole person, but there's an opportunity in the covenant of marriage to be expanded because of this relationship in order to understand what God is like and who you're called to be. And I think this is what I've realized is the fastest way to destroy a marriage. Make it about transactions. Make it about entering into negotiations and demanding your rights from your spouse. That's the fastest way to destroy a marriage. Treat your spouse like you would your landlord. Well, you didn't do this for me, and you didn't do this, and you didn't do this, and you didn't do this, so I'm not going to do that. And that kind of, like, there's no mutual submission there. There's no other-centered love and adoration. It's all based on fear. I'm not getting my needs met, so I'm pulling away, or I'm aggressive, or whatever it might be, to try to manipulate you to get what I need out of you. Because at the core of all of that fear is this beautiful human desire to be loved, to be seen, to have our needs met. But when we turn into that transactional thing where it's based on fear, we don't become more than we were when we were alone. And that's the, I think that's the radical nature of marriage being this covenant. Or in my language, I would say it's the choosing not to choose. When it's transactional, it's like your landlord. It's like, well, I'll just break the lease because you're not fulfilling your obligation to this form that we signed. But in covenant, it's saying, I'm not going anywhere, and we're going to learn how to do this, and we're going to learn how do we submit to one another? How do I make you more important than me? And how do I trust that you're going to meet my needs? That if love is the process of mutual education, I'm going to teach you about me and how to love me, how to help me grow. And I'm asking you to do the same. Teach me how to love you, how to help you grow. And it's the fear. It's that transactional fear that keeps us apart, where we manipulate each other, where we run away from one another, where we steamroll one another. It brings us to the second relationship. I think parenting in the kingdom is about raising up resilient followers of King Jesus. And so if in the background of this marriage, 
idea is the story of Adam and Eve. I think for Paul, he's thinking here about the, the, the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments found in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. It says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. And it was the first commandment that comes with this promise. Like to have this kind of relationship in God's new family, Israel, is going to actually pay dividends out in future generations. So what you're building now is a legacy that will affect your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. And so this commandment comes with this promise of a legacy But, like what we see with marriage, Paul is challenging the culturally dominant party of the day to consider, is your posture of godly love or is it this power over authority type thing? So yes, children, obey your parents, absolutely. Like that's how we create a legacy. That's how we pass on the faith. That's how we continue to live well in the world. But parents do not exasperate your children. So he's calling to account those who are in power to question, why do you have the power? Are you taking advantage of that power? And are you living into the role as God has defined it? And that brings us to the third one, about masters and slaves. I think this is one of the things that I found especially helpful with these kinds of passages. We must hold a high vision for all of our relationships, but also have grace for where they are today. Now, some of us, we're so pragmatic that we just accept things the way they are today and we don't make any effort to improve them. And that is also a relationship killer. But some of us, we're so idealistic and we have such a vision for what things could be that we're constantly frustrated about the present and we can't be in the moment with the relationship as it is right now. And I think what Paul is constantly encouraging us towards is how do you hold this creative tension between what is now and what the kingdom vision is for a relationship so that we, we, we are honest with where we're at today, but we're also looking at the trajectory for growth. Now, when we begin to apply that to a passage like this, this is where it gets really sticky because this passage in Colossians 3, um, you know, the book of Philemon, um, in Ephesians, other places, these were literally the passages that were used to justify slavery in America by the Christian church, okay? So if you know the history of the United States, you know in the 17 and 1800s especially, there were churches that literally used this to justify slavery, there was even stories in South Carolina of, uh, uh, of a pastor who would baptize slaves into the church and they had to make a promise that they were going to follow this in order to get baptized. Like, in order to become a Christian, you have to promise that you're going to obey your masters and you're never going to question and you're never going to run away. Okay? So that's real. That happened. And it kind of still does because that's what the Bible says. Okay, so do you see the difference between using the Bible as a manual and then actually allowing it to be genuinely divinely inspired where it gives us a vision of Jesus that transforms our thinking, our feeling, and our seeing? And I think it's important with all of these kinds of relationships as we're working it out is to ask the question, what was humanity's created intention before the fall? I talked about it with marriage With Adam and Eve, things getting broken, we're not called to perpetuate the curse, but actually just find the redemption to the curse. And it's always saying, what was the intention of humanity before the fall? And I remember when we did Colossians 3.11 a couple weeks ago, and he says, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And Paul doesn't mean we're erasing 
ideas of gender, of socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity. He's not saying we're just going like, to pretend like none of those things exist. He's saying those are no longer the categories for how we rank human beings in terms of their value. And I think Paul has always maintained this very high vision of what it will look like when God finished what he started on the cross. We think about it in like Revelation where it says there's this vision of like every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered together worshiping God as one. Or when we see in Philippians like every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There's this really beautiful heavenly vision we have for what this looks like at the end. But Paul is also a pragmatist and he's going, I know that I need to answer your questions about in the meantime while his vision of the future is being worked out. It does not mean that Paul is condoning slavery. And that's the thing that was so often justified in our country in very recent history. And the problem is, it took us too long to realize that. Now, this is another one of these phenomenons in, in American culture in general and American Christianity in particular. Is we think about ourselves as individuals and we go, well, I'm not responsible for what those people did. The first church of whatever, I don't, I don't belong to them. Like, I, that's, that's not my thing. And I think we have, a lot of us have recognized that over the past year, right? Like, when we're, when we're dealing with the racial history of our country, we're like, but that was like 200 years ago. Like, it has nothing to do with me anymore. And that's a very, like, individualistic way of reading it. Instead of what we see throughout Scripture, it's like I always think about, like, when Israel came back out of exile, they came back to Jerusalem, the Promised Land, they began to rebuild, and then someone stood up and read the, the Torah, and everybody just lost their minds, and like, whoa, we've missed it for, like, 400 years. And they entered in this period of mourning their history, because they understood as the people of God, we are accountable to our own past. And so for those of us, especially white Christians in this country, we have to own the past. It took us way too long to get over these passages and to understand that we were actually perpetuating ungodly and demonic power structures, and we need to own that. And that is the constant progress of learning how to mourn, how to grieve, and how to try to do this better. A few weeks ago, I just finished Esau Macaulay's wonderful book, Reading While Black, and he was talking about these particular passages. How do we interpret... Uh, like slavery and, and the history of slavery in this country. And this is what he said. Slavery is a manifestation of the fall. And God begins the story of Israel by freeing them from slavery as a symbol of hope. My ancestors read it that way, and so do I. The Old Testament laws recognize the humanity and dignity of the enslaved person in ways that far outstrip Israel's contemporaries. It also provides various avenues for freedom. It is not everything, but it is enough because I can follow the trajectory of these texts towards liberation. And I think he, he not that Paul gets a pass, but there's a, there's a way of understanding. Paul has this grand vision for what it looks like where there is no more slavery, there is no more power over dynamics when it comes to gender, when it comes to families, when it comes to our socioeconomic structures where all of that is being undone by the cross. But in the meantime, how do we operate today that we're working towards that vision? How do we learn how to relate with one another now so that we can enter into that certain future? And that's the real challenge of what we're called to. Because this language of submitting to one another out of, Christ, out of reverence for Christ Jesus, of the, the idea that God shows no favoritism, this is, these are foreign 
topics to us. These are foreign concepts. That is not the water we've been swimming in for most of our lives. And in fact, many of us have grown up in Christian households that have actually perpetuated all of those things rather than challenging, subverting them and submitting them to the cross to to radically reread our relationships through the lens of Christ. And I think this is, I, I, I didn't know if I wanted to say this at the beginning or at the end, but I think this is tremendously important, especially when we're thinking about these three relationships because they're so important. God never wants us to stay in relationships that are abusive. What is an abusive relationship? It's any relationship in which you, your humanity is denied, where you are less than, where you're turned into an object, okay? That's what abuse is. God never wants us to stay in relationships that are abusive, denying our humanity. When someone is abusive, they relinquish their God-given role in our lives, I think this is the biggest crime where a passage like this has been weaponized against oppressed people. And I hear it often. I hear it in marriages where especially the wife says, well, at the end of the day, I just have to submit to him. I hear it in pastors who tell women, well, you need to honor your covenant. Like you just... Yeah, your husband's a work in progress, sure, but you just, you just need to st- stand by your man. Like in, in super abusive situations. And what does that say about the heart of God? That God would say those kinds of things. Like, yes, I know this is abusive and I know your humanity is being denied, but you just need to stick it out. You just need to honor the covenant that was made. It was so liberating for me to recognize that all of those roles, the titles that we have in one another's lives are temporary on this side of the grave to help us to understand what God is like. But when someone abuses us, they abdicate that role. They abdicate that title. When your spouse abuses you, they cease becoming your spouse and they become your abuser. When your parents abuse you or neglect you, they abdicate the role of being your parent. Now, is there redemption in the kingdom? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, no story is left where it's at when God takes a hold of it. But we cannot perpetuate these ideas of power and authority that maintain systems of oppression in the name of Jesus because the Bible tells us so, because we're missing out on this radical reimagining of what it means for us to have kingdom relationships that redeem, that restore, that bring us to new life, that because of our relationships, we are more than what we were when we were alone. And yes, that means that we have to discern the difference between discomfort, because there's radical discomfort in relationship and actual abuse, but we do that together. We work it out together to figure out what's happening in my relationships and how do I enter into them with this hope that I become closer to God because of these relationships in my life and I become more fully human because of them. And so to kind of finish out, I want to kind of bring us back to this beauty of like Trinity Sunday and what that means for our relationships. Number one, do you know and celebrate God as a loving community? When you look at God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you see this other-centered, other-giving love, this mutual submission of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal? 
Or do you have like within you this kind of militaristic idea of like the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit? Do you see the beautiful loving community that is the Trinity? And then secondly, do you allow that revelation of God to shape your relationships? That your marriage, your family, all these different relationships become a place to practice the Trinity, to live into that flow, that, that loving flow of relationship that we see in who God is. This is one of my favorite icons of all time. It's very old. It's taken from a story in Genesis 18 where Abraham's visited by these three strangers. Doesn't tell us who they are. They behave very strangely. They seem to speak with one voice and they kind of continue to, like Abraham falls down and worships them, which is odd because you don't even do that for angels, but they kind of receive that. And the early uh, church mothers and fathers said, ah, I think that's actually the Trinity revealing itself to Abraham. And so this icon was painted to kind of help us to live into that story. And I love what we see is these three characters and they look identical, don't they just, they just look like they're a, they're, they, they're a package deal. But the way that they're looking at one another is this constant kind of like submission to one another, like a deferment, like it's all about you, like you're the delight, you're the beloved. And it's this circuit, this Trinitarian circuit of self-giving love. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to give you a moment. You can kind of close your eyes and just ponder those two questions or you can kind of allow this icon to wash over you and to help you to sit into that. But just to reflect on those relationships in your life, do you have that vision for who God is calling you to be and how you're to be entering into relationship, what those relationships are for? And, and what kind of things do you maybe need to shift in order to see the kingdom come in your relationships? So Father, we thank you that you have birthed us into relationship. We thank you that we are needs-based creatures, and that's not a bad thing. We thank you that you've given us community, you've given us other people, that through them you might meet our needs, and through us you might meet theirs. God, we're sorry for the times when we have believed that power and authority comes from over top of other people. We're sorry for the times that we've ranked people according to these human systems of who has the power, who has the authority, and then that we have, we've bought into unhealthy versions of submission, empirical notions of submission. God, would you shed us of all of those old ideas from the old world and instead bring us into the light of your kingdom where we understand that power and authority is not something that we have over others, but because of what we see in Jesus, it's about sacrifice. It's about self-giving. It's about being selfless. And knowing in that in those relationships as we are other-centered so others will center on us. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would alight upon each of your dear ones here right now. Would you begin to reveal to us where maybe we've misunderstood the relationships in our lives? And would you give us a vision for a better way, a more Christ-like way, a kingdom way? I pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church Podcast. 
To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.